This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hi, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. You've probably heard that the farmer's share of the food dollars quite low, something like 14 cents or so. It's a bit of a misleading statistic because the number varies wildly between types of crops. But the question remains, why can't farmers capture more of the value of their products? Uh, turns out this is a very complicated question, but you're going to hear two examples on this episode of farm businesses that decided to also become food businesses. Sure, I will tell you first and foremost that both of them have somewhat unique circumstances. Our first guest, Michael Bosworth, grows rice, a very storable product, just 30 miles from Sacramento, an urban center. Our second guest, the founders of Premium Growers, farm in the Willamette Valley, where over 90% of the U.S. hazelnut production is concentrated. But here's why I still think that these stories, despite their unique circumstances, are worth pointing to as a possible growing part of the future of agriculture. Number one, it's because the Internet is shrinking the world. You don't have to physically live as close to a customer to develop a strong relationship with them as you would have 20, 30 plus years ago. Number two, if we care about farmer profitability, we need to not just look at being a lower cost producer and how we can help farmers become lower cost producers, but somehow capture more of the value of the products themselves, actually focus on the other side of the P&L equation. And then number three, I see storage and handling and logistics becoming more and more automated, everything from sort of last mile logistics to perhaps even self-driving trucks someday. This can really help one of the biggest barriers to farmers having some sort of food company aspect to them in, in handling some of those logistics problems. I've got a lot of other reasons as well, but I'll, I'll go ahead and get off my soapbox for now and let you hear from these farmer slash food company founders themselves. Our first guest is Michael Bosworth. I actually met Mike when I was at UC Davis. He's a fifth generation rice farmer in Northern California who started Next Generation Foods in 2006. Michael starts off with the origins of his company, Next Generation Foods, which sells to food service. Yeah, so it really came when I was going to UC Davis, I took a class on ag marketing. And one of our projects there was to follow a commodity from field to the consumer. And I chose to study organic rice, which we were growing at the time. We've been growing organic rice since 1997, in addition to our conventional rice. And, you know, kind of looking at that value chain and trying to figure out a way to capture more of the value chain back to the farm level. So at that point, we decided that we wanted to try marketing our organic rice direct to restaurants. And to do that, you don't just start with 100 pounds. You have to mill a truckload, which is 50,000 pounds, and then you have to find a home for it. So that was quite an experience, you know, developing a brand, developing packaging, milling the product, storing the product. But since it's organic, we had to store it in and uh, refrigerated, you know, kind of cold storage at 40 degrees to prevent any insect infestation. And so, you know, not only was it a challenge, but it wasn't cheap. 
And so, you know, I pretty much called every sushi restaurant in Sacramento and, you know, that area and every other kind of restaurant I thought I could sell it to. And over time, you know, grew a customer base for that product. So that was one product. We really kind of stumbled across our niche, just happened to go to a meeting at, at UC Davis on the campus when the whole local food thing was starting up. And we started selling to kind of the the coffee house, which is the biggest, you know, food destination on campus and said, wow, this is great. They're taking, you know, 400 pounds every week. This is a lot better than, you know, selling 25 pounds a week to some fine dining restaurant. And that led us to selling to all the dining commons on campus. So feeding about 6,000 kids a day, three meals a day. And that was 2,000 pounds a week. And so that, that really, it was pretty apparent early on that that was a good niche for us. And had you, had you always been storing rice? I mean, to have this so that you could, you could kind of sell direct, did you always have the storage or did you have to set that up specifically for next generation foods when you started it? Yeah, we didn't have the storage. We have on, on farm, you know, bins, we have a commercial rice drying facility, but all the rice there was in patty form unprocessed. And so we, you know, after all the years of growing rice, we'd never actually eaten rice from our farm because it generally gets co-mingled and goes to a mill and so, you know, it's you're eating your variety, but you don't ever know that it's your rice. And so that was kind of neat being able to mill our rice and eat our own rice. So then the cold storage thing, we just ended up going to a commercial facility in Yuba City and they would just charge us by the pallet. So we didn't have to build anything. We didn't have any fixed costs. It was all variable costs based on the volume that we stored there. Cool. Yeah. And when you were calling the sushi restaurants in Sacramento, what, what was your pitch? Just having a local, you know, single farm variety of rice available to them. Organic, you know, we found was a challenge for a lot of them. It just was more expensive and, you know, it was difficult for them to capture the value of that added cost, you know, within their business. And so quickly, you know, kind of learned that that was a, a smaller niche than we thought it was. And got in to one restaurant that, you know, ended up being extremely popular, probably the best restaurant in Sacramento for sushi. And that really kind of helped us to kind of le- legitimize what we were doing. The chef has a big following and, you know, we're, we're still supplying him today. So 14 years later, you know, he's our, he's our guy. He's opened other restaurant concepts as well. And we're his exclusive rice supplier. So it's worked really well in some regards and others, it's been, you know, more of a challenge. Yeah. And, and what other products do you offer now? I know you grow the rice and you mentioned earlier you have beef cattle and walnuts, but I also know you've you've got some other farmers that that supply through Next Generation Foods too. So so how does that part work and what, what's the product offering currently? Yeah. So from our farm, we have about 20 different products. So we have, you know, every variety that we grow, 10 varieties, we either sell them in white or brown, just depending on how we mill the product. So there's 20 products. So then we also work a lot with other farmers. So we have an olive oil producer. We have a couple of vinegar suppliers. We have a great organic farmer named Ed Sills out of Pleasant Grove, named Pleasant Grove Farms. And he does organic popcorn. And, and we sell a lot of that to the Golden One Center, which is the sports arena in Sacramento that the Sacramento Kings play at. So we're their ex- exclusive popcorn supplier for them. And they're they really value local food. He also grows a lot of different beans organically. So... Those are good products. We have some pasta that's made out of Sonoma. 
other other beans from northern and central California as well. So mostly dry goods. We don't sell any meat. We don't sell any produce. It's just a I'm not real comfortable with the perishability factor on a lot of those products. So everything we have is kind of more of a pantry item. So how does that work then with with the farmer as far as do do you buy the product from them and then turn around and sell it to your customer or is it you kind of on a broker type uh, arrangement or how does that work? Yeah, so we buy everything direct and generally it's in like pallet quantities and you know based on the pricing that they set and then we add our margin for storage, distribution, marketing and that's that's variable. It just kind of depends on you know, what the price is from the grower and kind of what the competition is offering. But yeah, we, we pay everything to the growers kind of on a net 30 or whatever their terms are, then we, you know, sell it as we, as we can. Sure. You know, my perception was, you know, with the, the, the huge ginormous suppliers like Cisco that are out there and, and yeah, I imagine some of your customers are buying stuff from, from companies like that. Is it difficult for them to have a separate vendor or, I mean, is that a big barrier to overcome or are they pretty, pretty excited to have some variability in, in the people supplying them products? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the chefs are really excited about it, right? Having single origin products that aren't imported, they, you know, trust the consistency of the quality. It's not some blended product that changes from time to time. Yeah. But, you know, the corporate side of things can be a challenge. So a couple of the big food service operators that we supply are Sodexo, which is one of the biggest in the world, and another one called Compass Group, which is also one of the biggest operators in the world. And yeah, there's a lot of you know paperwork and requirements to fulfill. So we have to have a $5 million liability insurance. We have to you know, add them as additional insured. We have to complete paperwork every year to continue being a supplier for them. Compass Group in particular is reluctant to bring on new vendors, but we're an approved, we became an approved vendor for them in about 2010. And that was a huge deal. There's a big barrier to entry if you're not an approved vendor. And so that's really allowed us to grow quite a bit. And they service a lot of the tech companies in the Bay Area. So that's a that's a huge potential market for us and a lot of universities as well. And are you delivering the product yourself or are they delivering it for you and kind of picking it up at your warehouse? I know you have a warehouse in Sacramento. Yeah, we deliver everything ourselves. So we have a, a couple of trucks and we have routes and we're on the road about five days a week delivering to all of our customers. So, you know, it, I, I think for us, that's been the best way to do it just because we can keep those relationships close and and also get great feedback from the chefs going direct. We, we have existing relationships with other distributors as well that serve either customers that we can't go direct to or types of customers that we don't service as well. And, and I feel like that becomes a little disconnected and I'm not sure that our sales are all they could be, you know, without that direct relationship. Right. How much of uh, your farm's production now is going towards the direct to consumer versus going the more conventional route? Oh, we're, you know, a little over 5%. It's, it's not a huge number, but, you know, it's been growing over the years. I brought on a, a partner and kind of a head of operations when we moved down to Sacramento in uh, 2015. And He's really helped to grow the business, being able to work in it every single day. And so, yeah, our, our 
you know, revenue continues to grow and our customer base continues to grow. And so we're, you know, while it's not a, a huge portion of the pie, it's one of those deals where it's a pretty stable price-wise market for us and, and something we want to continue to focus on. Yeah. And I'm always curious about, you know, obviously the narrative is consumers want to know where their food comes from and they want to know their farmer. Uh, but I'm always curious about how that sort of plays out in practice. I mean, in your, in your experience, how much does the average, you know, person that's going to end up eating the rice want to know who the farmer was and where it comes from, or, you know, kind of to what extent are you noticing that? Yeah. So we do a lot of business with universities where we pretty much serve every university in Northern California with the exception of just a couple. And I, I think that's the biggest area of connection for us is the the younger folks in, in school. You know, we, we go down to UC Davis a couple of times a year and they have like a farm to college night and you, you, you get to really interact with a lot of the students. And it's really interesting. I think they there's a lot of value there for them. And then in the tech campuses, you know, it's more so our relationship with the chefs and then, you know, directors of outreach and, and, you know, social media directors for each of those accounts. We try and have a good relationship there and they're able to help tell our story. It's a little bit more challenging to connect directly with their guests, you know, but we, we don't have any bad reactions to it. That's for sure. Everything's pretty positive, you know, a lot of questions and, you know, I, I find that interesting to, you know, be able to interact with people and, you know, have those conversations. Yeah, that's great. And are you, are you all kind of always on the hunt for new products or new product lines that fit your model? Yeah, I am. So we, I go to a lot of food shows. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be in San Francisco at the fancy food show. And then in March, I'll be at Expo West down in Anaheim. So looking there for new innovative products that we can offer our guests, our, our customers. And then the other thing is just getting really good feedback from our customers on what they're looking for than just finding a grower. So, you know, at, at Golden One Center, they said, hey, we, we really need a local popcorn. And, you know, our neighbor just down the road grows awesome organic popcorn. And that was just a really easy fit. But just kind of understand their needs and the other way we do it is when we're delivering, you know, our delivery guys are looking around in the storage rooms at other products that, you know, are, ca are California grown that we might be able to source directly from a grower as opposed to Cisco or somebody like that where they're currently buying from. Yeah. Yeah. What, what trends are you seeing? Anything new and different that people aren't talking too much about yet as far as what's, you know, what people are wanting or what they're not wanting? I, th I think just really clean products. I mean, a lot of people already know about that clean products, sustainability. So, you know, we really talk about what we're doing on our farm, not only for, you know, how we grow our crop, but how we're also impacting wildlife and using our inputs and, you know, constantly improving plant based items are really big. So we're, you know, positioned well for that. And then, you know, again, I, I think the growing concern for exactly where your food comes from and how it's produced. I, I don't think that's something that's going to go away, especially with the new, you know, the younger folks. So, you know, that's just something that we want to continue to improve on how we communicate that, you know, to, to our customers and how we position our company. Yeah. And if, if somebody's listening and they're a producer, maybe they kind of farm on the side a little bit and they, and they would like to do something where they're not just relying on commodity markets, you know, what, what advice would you give them as far as where to start? Well, I, I really like food service. I mean, when I started the business in 2006, I was really looking at retail. And so I went to the local Whole Foods in Sacramento and 
they had this local food program that they started up and kind of if you had a decent product you were in you know and so i went there with i don't know 10 different products walnuts almonds whatever i was aggregating from other farms and got all the products in the store and they would order a case of this a week and a case of that the next week and you know I was losing money every single time I was driving down there. And then online, I was because it wasn't consistent. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a $40 case of rice and it was costing me $30 to drive it down there, you know? And so it looked, I was really excited about it, but it, in the end, it, it just wasn't working. So food service for me has been really good. I think you can move larger volumes. You can have a consistent buying base they're cooking food every day. So they're buying food every day. And, uh, that's, that's really what I'd recommend people going. I've talked to other rice growers in Arkansas and other, you know, areas and that are going direct to consumer. And I always encourage them to, you know, go to the local university and see if they can get in there. You know, we're, you know, the more you talk to people from other regions of the, of the United States, the more you realize how lucky we are geographically based in Sacramento, right? So having millions of people with a little bit higher income, right? 60 miles down the road in the Bay Area is, is mm-hmm. really huge for us. And so that's one of the other things to really evaluate is how big is your market? How far do you have to go to get there? And does that make sense? You know? Great, Mike. Well, I really appreciate this. Anything we didn't get a chance to get to here that you think is really important for anyone entrepreneurial and looking at this direct-to-consumer space and trying to figure out, you know, just learn more about it? Yeah, I mean, I I would really encourage any grower, any participant in agriculture to go to a food show. It's incredible what you can learn about what what people are using your product for and what where the trends are going and, you know, how you might be able to position yourself to, you know, benefit from those trends. I think I'm blown away every time I go to one and I'm trying to get all my farm and friends to kind of go with me the next time. It's, it's, it's really a good opportunity. So if you ever get a chance to do that, you know, farm shows are great. It's good to learn about what you're doing on your farm, but it's really, really good to learn about what's happening after the product leaves your farm. Thank you very much to Michael Bosworth for sharing his story on the show. I really love that last tip about attending food shows. I think all of us should be doing that more to understand what's happening in the future of agriculture. Make sure you go support Michael over at www.nextgenfoods.com. You can even order something there online. You don't have to be food service to buy it. Next, we have another example of farmers becoming food companies. And I say farmers, plural, because you're going to hear from two farmers, Brent and Marty, who, along with their third business partner, Bob, started Premium Growers. This hazelnut company founded by these three guys who've known each other for many years can trace its founding back to Brent's background. I'm a sixth generation farmer here. I grew up with my grandparents had retail fruit stands. So We raised peaches and apples and blackberries and sold them fresh fresh market through a number of fruit stands here all throughout the western part of the state. Later years, when the peach industry kind of shrunk, we converted into all blackberries. And uh, my parents and some other farmers in the area got together and started our own processing company. So I kind of grown up in a history of vertically integrating are with our ag commodities to try and, you know, capture as much of the margins as possible, take it direct to market. 
Eventually, Brent started growing hazelnuts and thinking about if those could be taken direct to market as well. He bounced the idea off of his friend and fellow hazelnut farmer, Marty. Well, I've known these guys since high school, so uh, and you know I've seen Brent around quite a bit. Bob was out of the area at the time, but we just kind of met, and we both were doing hazelnut production, and we just said, you know, I'm always looking at opportunities too to increase our value in our products, and so that's where we, me and Brent, got together, and then basically Bob was coming back to the area, and it seemed like a good fit. A good fit, that is, to help them run and grow the business. While Brent and Marty were farming, Bob had moved away for his corporate career. Well, I was in a corporate environment for over 28 years and or in a cruise ship business. So it's an entertainment business, but I ran operations. So I ran businesses on the ships starting you know, from scratch to, to, you know, to very successful and, and large, large you know, businesses, you know, retail, video, photography. And I also grew up in the food department and this cruise business. So I learned a lot about food process handling, protocols, safety, inspections. I learned a lot of that from, from the corporate world. But what I bring to the table, I think, is, is just, the, you know, that kind of the, the more of a business side of things and, and just uh, coming up with ideas from my, my experiences. But being in the food business and on the other end of the the stick is it's it's interesting it's it's it, we're learning a lot every day it's like drinking from a fire hose so now you've met the trio founders of premium growers i'd bet most of you probably also need an introduction to the star of the show the hazelnut also known as the filbert hazelnut production in the u.s happens pretty much exclusively in the pacific northwest more specifically in oregon's willamette valley this is mostly because of climate and oregon state university's program on blight resistant varieties the tree crop produces a nut known for its delicious flavor and nutrition it's also considered a delicacy in china and about 60 percent of the in-shell u.s production is exported to asia Brent explains the growing process. Yeah, so you, you begin with transplanting what I call a whip, which is just a single stick with roots on the bottom of it. Might be a half inch in diameter and maybe three feet tall, four feet tall. Transplant that out into a field, and it takes about four years, three to four years, before they start producing nuts. And it's about seven to eight years before they come into maturity where they're close close to or in full production. So once they once they start producing the the process is the nuts drop uh, pardon me the nuts drop naturally from the trees and fall to the ground and culturally we've kept the ground clean and and hard surface like a like you would the floor of a of a shop building a hard surface so that you can come in and sweep the nuts up we've got mechanical We've got these machines that will come in and sweep them and pick them, get them up off the ground, sort some of the debris out. And then we deliver them to a processor where they will dry the, uh, wash and clean the nuts. They're in, they're in a shell. They'll wash and clean the nuts and dry them down to about a 10% moisture, which is puts them in a relatively stable state so they can be stored for longer periods of time. And then before they would ever come into our hands again, they are cracked out and, and the shells removed and we get a raw kernel, much like what you'd expect to see a peanut in a bag in the store or an almond. We receive these kernels, we call them, uh, in that form. And then we run them through our processes. We roast them and season them and, and then put them into a retail bag. 
Now, from the outside looking in, it may seem like hazelnut farmers like Brent are already doing the hard part in growing the product. So why wait so long to just start packaging and selling their own? Well, it's not quite that easy, says Marty. My view is it, it does take a lot of work. I mean, it's not simple. And that, and, and be honest with you, with Bob being in here, he's taking control of a lot of the, you know, make sure we're certified here. We're following the protocol and everything for a facility. It's not just put up a building and start right away. So you got to get FDA, ODA certified and, and so forth. So it, it, it's not a simple thing. And then you got to be in the marketing. And I think me and Brent both be, were in the nursery business, you know, where we did our own marketing. So you knew that you had to kind of work. You just don't sell it to one, uh, you know, like you do grains or something to a facility and they buy whatever you want at the time. So Marty's point here is a valid one. There's a big difference between deciding to deliver a load of grain and picking up a check and setting up the production, logistics, and marketing for a direct-to-consumer business like this one. In fact, it's about two years difference, says Bob. So you spent an awful lot of time, and it took us probably a, a year to where we got to the point where we had a brand name, a product formula, and a concept and then we had to go out and get the physical items, you know, the roaster, and then we had to build a facility. So it's taken us about two years to get to this point, I would say. That's two years to bring the business to life. And as with getting any business off the ground, those two years included their fair share of both excitement and some discomfort. In fact, Brent had his doubts at first. It was a little concerning at first because there's not a lot of commercial retail hazelnuts available. There's a couple other companies doing it, but not like you would see almonds and other nuts in the store. But again, I mentioned earlier that I started seeing national advertisements for uh, candies that were using the uh, hazelnuts and nut butters and different things that were using them. And so from my perspective, I, I really felt like that this was a wave that was just going to expand as people are looking for healthier products. And hazelnuts are a very healthy product. They're one of the least allergenic nuts, is my understanding anyway, that are available there's just a lot of attributes to uh, this this nut that I believe are going to make it a very popular product in the future, and everything we're seeing right now supports that. Worth mentioning here that throughout my conversation, all three of these guys praised each other and said that this could only be possible by partnering together. Brent, with his experience selling products direct to consumer in the past and his financial savvy, Marty with the deep farming background and mechanical inclination, and Bob with his experience in business development and operations. They stress the importance of good partners for anyone who might want to go this direct to consumer route. All of the hard work has started to pay off now as Brent describes the reaction they're receiving from customers. One of the most rewarding aspects for me as in the last few months as we've rolled our product out and handed it out to friends and neighbors and, and complete strangers out through different opportunities, the feedback has just been amazing. It's been a very rewarding thing to put so much time and effort and money into creating a product and then to see the response being so positive people saying that you've got a very unique product, I've never tasted anything like this, those kind of responses, that, that's, that's really rewarding. Uh, because in the beginning, when we started into this two years ago, you really didn't know exactly what that response was going to be. We felt like we had it. And we did a lot of research, did some focus groups to try our products first before we dove in head first. We were able to create some trials, runs that we felt like pretty accurately mimicked what our large production scale runs would taste like. And and be like. 
And with uh, the positive responses we got back from that, that gave us the confidence to go ahead and invest and dive in head first, so to speak, with the finances and time and effort. And now we're seeing the rewards of those efforts. And the more people that get them, the more positive responses come back. The end result is a variety of flavored hazelnuts, including, and this is just a few, spicy barbecue, sweet cinnamon, and natural roasted. Here's Bob with the details on where they're selling these products. Well, they can they can go to www.premiumgrowers.com, and we have a wonderful website there where you can buy as many as you'd like and any flavor combinations you like. And you can go to locally, We can you can go to the Bauman Farms to buy them. You can go to True Value to buy them. We've got some farm uh, stores in the area. And we'll be on Amazon soon and we'll be in a supermarket near you very soon. Big thank you to Brent, Marty, and Bob for being on the show. They're with Premium Growers. Check them out at premiumgrowers.com. Perhaps you've never had a hazelnut before. Well, this is a good time to try one. Hop on there and try. And actually, I've got another special opportunity for you. Thanks for sticking around all the way to the end of this episode here. I've been teasing for about a month now that I'm launching a special Future of Agriculture membership, and it is now live. I'm ready to start rolling this out, and I would love for you to be one of the early members. If you want to check that out, you can go to patreon.com forward slash agriculture. That's Patreon is P-A-T-R. R-E-O-N.com forward slash agriculture. You're going to see a few different levels of membership. These are paid memberships. I'll tell you right now, but there's some interesting stuff that goes along with it. And for the first 10 people who sign up, because we're just starting to roll this out for the first 10 people sign up, I'm going to send you one of the direct to consumer products that have been discussed on the show here today. So uh, a little added extra incentive there to hopefully check that out. Go to patreon.com forward slash agriculture. You're going to see the membership level and see the benefits that go along with them. Some really cool stuff, including an invitation for the Table for 10 group discussion video chats that I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, including a lot of other cool stuff that we're rolling out as part of the future of agriculture. So go check that out. If uh, you want to become a member, great. If you don't want to become a member, that's okay too. In fact, the, the side benefit of having this membership is the free content available to everybody should just keep getting better for you. But hopefully you decide that the membership is worth your while. Would love to have you aboard. And we have some exciting things planned for those members. So first 10 who sign up, we're going to send you a direct-to-consumer gift in the mail. You would have to be in North America to be eligible for that. If you're not in North America, I'm going to work something else out with you. We'll take that on a case-by-case basis. Hey, thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really think this direct-to-consumer stuff is an interesting part of the future of agriculture. And we'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.